0: Church, we do serve a God who satisfies our needs, and our greatest need is for Him. And often we try to put things in place of Him. We run after other things as if they can satisfy in a way that only uh, knowing Him satisfies. And when we've tasted His goodness, uh, He satisfies our longing and our our greatest need. Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the second book of the Bible, the book uh, of Exodus, as we continue. A new message series we started last week uh, from these opening chapters of Exodus uh, titled Unforgettable. And if you're familiar with the story of Exodus and, and Moses and God's work through Moses, you know that it is an unforgettable story. It is uh, an unparalleled story. It is uh, a, a tremendous story, an unforgettable story. But even more than that, uh, it's a reminder uh, that God is a God who does not forget his promises. God is a God who doesn't forget his plans. God is a God who doesn't uh, forget his, his people. And in our text for this morning, uh, God's plans are uh, clearly portrayed. Uh, his hand is obvious. He is at work, working uh, for our good and for his, his glory. And as you find your place there in uh, Exodus chapter 2, uh, let me invite you to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of, of God's holy word let me remind you just a bit of, of the context uh, of where we are. So if you were here last week, or you may recall that, uh, that the uh, Israelites have spent a number of years in oppression and slavery in Egypt. They've been taken into a foreign land. They've multiplied there in a great way. And as a result of their multiplication, the king of that land, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is threatened by them. He's worried about them. He's worried that they're going to become so numerous that uh, they might join his enemies and fight against him. And so Pharaoh the king takes matters into his own hands. He begins to enslave the Israelites to oppress them. Hoping that that will curb their power and population. And when that doesn't work. He uh, he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys when they're born. Uh, so that he can continue to control the power and, and population. And when that doesn't work. Exodus chapter 1 verse 22. Pharaoh gives this order. He says every Hebrew boy that is born. You must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live and that's where we pick up our story for today chapter 2 verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord The Bible says now a man of the tribe of levi Married a levite woman And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son When she saw that he was a fine child she hid him for three months But when she could hide him no longer she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Would you bow with me? Father, this is your word. Lord, guide us in rightly understanding it. Lord, may we discern the truths that you have for us through it today. May you convict us where we're in error. May you confront us with your truth. May you encourage us in the faith, faith in you. Lord, that we might apply the truths of of your word to our lives and be conformed more and more to the image of your son, our savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. Well, no doubt for uh, churchgoers, uh, this is a familiar story. Uh, Maybe even if you didn't grow up in in church, you've heard this story. And uh, if the details of this particular story don't amaze us, uh, it's because we've heard it too much. I mean, God's hand is all over the details of this particular drama. Uh, Has there ever been a time in your life where you were trying to accomplish something and the details just weren't coming together? It just wasn't happening. Uh, The details weren't falling in place in such a way to lead you to believe, hey, this is uh, working out. I am in control of this event. Things are coming together in the right way and in the right time. Uh, I felt a little bit like that, have felt a little bit like that, but felt a little bit like that yesterday afternoon as I picked up uh, a a long delayed uh, home bathroom renovation project and thought it's time to get back on this. And uh, this has been a multi-step project where there's been a small wall that's been taken out. There's been a tub that's been taken out, floor's been taken up, wallpapers off, uh, repatching up the wall, getting prepared to put a new tub down, new paint, uh, new floor and there was this little uh piece up near the top of the wall, uh where the wall connects to the ceiling called molding. You're familiar with this? Uh not much um, of a gap there where I had taken out this little wall, and needed to replace that piece of molding, it had some scrap molding. I thought this is there's gonna be nothing to this, right? It shouldn't be nothing to this. And so I was pretty proud of myself. I got up and I trimmed each side of that where it had been angled so that I can just uh, cut, uh, measure, cut, and then apply. Put that right back in the hole and, and off we go. Well, uh, get down the road, make successful cuts, make successful measurements, uh, cut the piece and come to put that uh, molding piece up and get it up there. Get it uh, about, um, well, not far at all in. And, and what happens? It splits. The piece of molding breaks, and so I think, okay, that was not a good option. Nails too big, too forceful for this little piece of molding. Let's let's try this again. So go and find some more scrap uh, molding, cut it again, measure it again, uh, and drill some pilot holes. Uh, think I'm gonna uh, this is this is gonna go much better this time. I've learned from my mistake. Get it up. It's about 98% in. Tapping that final little uh, um, ex- protruding piece of nail in, and it splits again. I'm thinking this is just not going my way. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get this together and it's not happening. Finally, third time is a charm. It's in. It's, it's as good as Chris can get it in. It's in. Sometimes, I don't, I don't know if maybe it's just me, but sometimes we're, we're trying to do things and it doesn't feel like things are going our way. Things are not coming together. Uh, we're not in control or our control is not um, is not working. But other times in life, and perhaps you've experienced times in your own life where where things were coming together, maybe circumstances conveyed in your life that God was in something, that he was was guiding you, that he was leading you, that he was providing for you, and you could just see his hand. You knew that he was orchestrating events uh, for his purposes beyond your efforts and control. And this story is just such an example. Friends, God's fingerprints are all over this story, reminding us that God is sovereign That God is in control, that he is unmatched, that he is unequaled, and he is the author of human history. And not only is he God over all, but he is a good God over all. Friend, did you know that God is good, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the almighty maker of heaven and earth, but he is also a God who is kind and gracious and patient. He is compassionate. He is a God who comes near to us. He's a God who invites us into his family to approach him as our father. He is a God who delivers. He's a God who rescues. He's a God who redeems, who saves. You see, this story, Exodus 2, is about the birth of a man whom God would save in order to use that man as the savior of the Israelites in bondage under Pharaoh. A story of real life, salvation, From the hand of death, a story that teaches us that God accomplishes salvation in human history. God accomplishes salvation in human history. He accomplishes salvation in a real place and real time. And as is the case with. Many of the biblical stories like this one and others, many uh, scholars, many, many liberal scholars today want to dismiss this story as inaccurate or debatable or as ancient folklore. But the Bible doesn't present it that way. So let's not read it that way. In fact, the Bible presents this as the word of God, a story of God's work in real history at a real time. And so let's read it as if it is the word of the Lord. And after limited details in chapter 1, chapter 2 slows down and hones in on the birth of Moses as if something quite significant is happening here. And it is. It is. You see, Pharaoh's wicked heart has been spiraling and compounding in much the way that Adolf Hitler's did in his progressive opposition to the Jews. And this is not unlike the kind of cancerous spread of a culture of death in our own time and place through the gradual yet widening acceptance of abortion and euthanasia. This is the way unchecked evil works. You see, apart from God's gracious intervention, our wicked hearts descend deeper and deeper into sin. But thanks be to God, He is a God who intervenes. He is a God who steps in. He is one who has and who does intervene despite Pharaoh's efforts to weaken the Israelites by beating them into submission through slavery, through selective and uh, secret infanticide, and now through all out and public genocide. Despite these evil efforts, this particular Hebrew boy is spared. Now don't miss that the odds are absolutely stacked against him and his family. The king of Egypt hates them ultimately because he hates their God, our God. But this God has devised plans and he has made promises to a people and no wicked man is going to stand in God's way. God accomplishes salvation in human history and in salvation, God triumphs over evil. He triumphs over evil. You likely remember the story of Joseph, the story that sets the historical setting for the book of Exodus. Remember that Joseph is uh, a man with many brothers, and his his brothers uh, despise him. They hate him because he's daddy's favorite. And they begin to take out their jealousy, their hatred on uh, Joseph. They decide one day that they're going to get rid of him. They actually decide that they're going to murder him. At the last minute, they changed the course of action thinking, well, if we get rid of him, there's no benefit to us. Why don't we sell him off and take the proceeds for ourselves?" And so they sell Joseph to a traveling caravan. And ultimately, Joseph ends up in Egypt enslaved. God grants him favor and he is, Pharaoh, he is favor in the eyes of Pharaoh, the king. And then sometime later, he loses that privileged position and he's thrown in prison. A life of ups and downs, of waiting and trusting on the Lord. And eventually uh, God uh, grants him favor in a great way once again. He's delivered from prison and he assumes the most powerful position in all the land of Egypt with the exception of the king himself. There's a famine in the land of his family and so his family comes to Egypt because Egypt has food. You remember the story. The brothers come and they end up before Joseph unknowingly. And finally, toward the end of the story, the book of Genesis ends, and, and Joseph reveals his identity to them, and, and they 're broken hearted over the way that they had mistreated him and This is what Joseph tells his apologetic brothers in Genesis chapter fifty He says, "You intended to harm me there 's no doubt about that. He says, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, you intended to harm me, guys." But God has taken your efforts, your wicked efforts, and he is using them for his greater purposes and glory. And likewise, the efforts of Pharaoh are bent on destroying every Hebrew boy. Yet this particular Hebrew boy somehow survives and not only survives, but thrives under the care of the princess and ultimately in the palace of Pharaoh himself. Don't miss the incredible details of this story. In salvation, God triumphs over evil. Did you know that there is no obstacle that is too big for God to overcome? God is not afraid of death. He is not alarmed by illness. He's not fearful of the devil and his plans. There's no obstacle that is too big for our God to remove. This is the way that God works, taking places of death and turning them into places of life. Think of Noah and the flood. Think of Jonah and the belly of the fish in the bottom of the sea. Think of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. Think of Joseph, uh, or not Joseph, Jesus, Joseph's uh, earthly son in the tomb. You see, God has a history of bringing life out of apparent death. And if you are one of his, then this is exactly what he has done for you. See, Moses became the child of a king. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been invited to become children of the king. No longer children of darkness, no longer in slavery to sin, no longer defeated by death. Paul writes he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, God is a God of victory, of triumph over evil. Thus, believers, celebrate his victory. Celebrate his victory. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have uh, repented and, and trusted in Christ for salvation, then your life ought to be characterized by celebrations i don't know if your football team uh, won this uh, weekend I, I think most football teams represented in the room most college football teams won this weekend not all i know that uh, for once my team actually won some of you are used to winning some of us not so much um, uh, but did you know that god is always victorious that we don't have to wonder from week to week or from year to year. If his plans are going to come about. If, if he is going to remain on the throne. If he is going to be numero uno. He is always victorious. And through Jesus. He invites us church. To share in his victory. To partake of his victory. To relish in the life that he has given. The life that he is giving. And that he will forever give to his people. You see Christian. Like Moses. The odds were stacked against us too. Overcome by sin and self. Consumed with pride and jealousy. The odds were against us except that the Lord was on our side, thinking of us, shaping our future, and through, doing so through the birth of a Savior. I don't know about you, but sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, I need to be reminded that God has given me victory. And he's given me victory over sin and death and danger and darkness. The finished work, the completed work of Christ the King. Church, the truth is we have something to celebrate. We have something to come together and to sing about, to rejoice over. We have something to shout about. We have something even to dance about. Friends, I'm not Pentecostal, but I tell you what, we ought to be a little charismatic sometimes. We ought to be celebrating the victory of our God. I heard one amen. Can I get an amen? He rules and he reigns and he he has granted us favor. He has saved us by his grace. He has triumphed over evil for us in salvation. God triumphs over evil and he does so. Don't miss this. He does so for us. He does it for us and he does this. He does this, and salvation is is God's work from start to finish. He accomplishes this, not us. It is God's work from start to finish, from beginning to end. If you don't believe me, simply digest the details of this drama once again. Let's walk back through the story. The the wicked king of Egypt issues a decree to kill all the Israelite baby boys. Then two Israelites, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, they marry, they conceive. They wait for the baby to be born and give birth to a baby boy. A treacherous time. His mother loves him dearly, thus she hides him as long as she can, cherishing every moment with her newborn baby. But there comes a time when she can no longer hide him safely, and when she can no longer keep him a secret, she puts him in a basket. The word in this text for basket is is literally ark. Some of your translations may have a note about that, or may actually translate it that way. The only other place... This word is used in the Old Testament is the story of the flood, Noah and the ark. And so for original readers who were familiar with that text, this would have taken them back. She put him in an ark. God must be doing something extraordinary. He must be preparing to save and deliver this one as he did Noah and his family through the flood. You see, Moses' mother is not abandoning him. But she is trusting him to the Lord. If she had no hope that the Lord would spare her son, then surely uh, she wouldn't have sent her daughter along to see what would happen to him. Verse 4. And the author of Hebrews says, Moses' parents lived by faith in God and were not afraid of the king's edict. And so Moses' mother can only trust and hope and pray that her God will intervene, providing protection for her son as he floats on the crock-infested Nile. And He does. God does. But the daughter of the king of Egypt sees the baby and feels compassion on him. And so Moses's elder sister, Miriam, probably a young teenager at the time, who's been sent along by mom to watch what happens, speaks up and says to the princess, should I I go find a Hebrew woman to take care of this baby for you? And she responds and says, yes. Let me pay her. And so Moses' own mother cares for her baby son again until he is old enough to be adopted into the king's family. Don't miss all the women that God uses in this story. In chapter 1, he uses two Hebrew midwives. that covered that last week, Shifra and Pua, in a great and mighty way to be faithful to him, to be devoted to him, to spare these kids. And then in chapter 2, he uses a Levite woman. He uses Miriam, a young teenager. He uses Pharaoh's daughter. You know, the king thought if he could curb the power and population he, by eliminating all of the boys and the men, the men, then he had nothing to fear. But perhaps it was the women of faith whom he should have feared. Listen to one author's angle on this account. He writes, he says, imagine this scene. Moses floats down the dangerous Nile. God sovereignly cares for this little boy. God keeps Moses from crocodiles and starvation and drowning. And by God's grace, Moses was nourished and taught by an Israelite, his own mother, as an infant. God raised up a deliverer right under Pharaoh's nose. Another author, another commentator writes, he says, Moses is spared by being cast onto the very Nile that was to drown him. He's treated with maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him and to whose descendants he would become a nemesis and is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. Friend, God's hand is all over this story. Who else could accomplish such a salvation? Salvation is God's work. It's his work from start to finish. So see his providential hand see his hand see god's work his, his guiding hand his provision his protection his presence throughout this story and not only this story but we know this story is situated in a larger story the story of redemption through the word of god see his hand in it see his hand in your life he is at work god is at work always he's guiding he's providing he's moving human history toward his perfect will god accomplishes salvation in human history. This is what he was doing through Moses. He was creating. Protecting. Preparing. One who would gather the Israelites. And confront the king. And lead well over one million Hebrews. Out of oppression. In a foreign land. Now this is an incredible story. This is a story that ought to make us. Pause and consider. How how great the God of, of Moses. How great the god of the descendants of abraham and isaac and jacob the god of the israelites but as you know the story doesn't stop there there's more to this story deliverance from slavery in egypt 3500 years ago is not the final chapter it's not the end of the story for just a a little north and and east of egypt roughly 2000 years ago Another baby is born. Another newborn baby boy could be heard crying from a stable in Judea. Also born to a young set of Hebrew parents who were trusting their God. And the circumstances surrounding his birth and early years are eerily similar to Moses'. Don't miss that. A secretive attempt through the Magi to locate and eliminate this newborn king. And when that doesn't work, a decree by Herod, the great calling for the slaughter of all the baby boys in the region. And so the family flees as God leads deliverance to Egypt. And then at the appropriate time out of Egypt, the Bible says that this child grew in wisdom and he was covered with the grace of God. Description used in a similar way for Moses. Of course, this child is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. As much as Moses was revered, the author of of, of Hebrews and ultimately God himself says, Jesus, uh, Jesus is much greater than Moses. Moses has nothing on Jesus, just as the builder of a house is greater honor than the house itself. You see, Moses was a savior, but he was not the savior. Moses life. His call, his ministry, all prepared the descendants of Abraham and all of the world to encounter and to hear another one, a greater one. One who, like Moses, would be given a name that would reflect his destiny. Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, we read that Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Perhaps you have a note there that says Moses sounds like the Hebrew for, for draw out a reference to delivering him out of the Nile River, but more than that, also uh, portraying, anticipating, foreshadowing that he would be the one who would lead the Israelites out of slavery and through the water, drawn through the water into the Promised Land ultimately. Likewise, Jesus is given a name that would match his destiny. For Matthew tells us in Ch- Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that the angel said, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus. Because he's going to save people from their sins. Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. And through Jesus, that is exactly what God does. Salvation for the Jews. Salvation for the Gentiles. Salvation for people from every nation and tribe and people and language. Salvation for whosoever will turn and trust in Christ the Savior. Have you trusted in Christ the Savior? Have you trusted in the one who has the name that is above every name? Have you trusted in the King of kings and Lord of lords? The one who took on human flesh ultimately to live a perfect life. So that he could lay down his life on the cross in your place. In my place. Pay the price of your salvation. Have you trusted in him? Trust in the perfect Savior. Trust in the perfect Savior. Trust in him today. Today. For he saves, he is sufficient, and he satisfies. Friend, he satisfies like nothing else can satisfy. Can you imagine the satisfaction that Moses' mother must have felt when she trusted the Lord during a difficult time and then saw the Lord care and provide for her son? Care and provide for her friends? Jesus satisfies, the perfect Savior satisfies. He is God's plan of redemption for you and for me. Trust His provision on the cross for you. Entrust your life to Him. Live for His glory. Stand upon the truth of His word, of His life, of His substitutionary death, and of His resurrection. For that is why He came. And He came for you. For He came for you. So partake of His provision for you. Partake of his provision for you. Receive the life that he provides. The abundant life and the eternal life. The salvation that he offers. Receive the, the gift of his life. And the New Testament describes salvation in a number of different ways. Forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I, I've come that you may have life to the full. John tells us, John records Jesus' words, that he's come so that we shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. Paul says that uh, through Jesus we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the the kingdom of the Son God loves. A number of ways, from children of darkness to children of light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul portrays what Christ has done as an exchange. Our sin Our guilt for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The right position before the Most High God given to us. That is grace. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've earned it. But simply a gift of Almighty God. Our sin for His righteousness. Have you received His righteousness? Have you received the life that He offers you if you've not received that life if you don't know that you're right with god if you don't know for certain that you are forgiven of your sins that you are a child of the king then cry out to him today to save you he will save you today is the day of salvation bible says if anyone confesses with their mouth that jesus is lord and believes in their heart that god raised him from the dead then that person will be saved acknowledge your sin before god saying something to the effect of, Lord, I've I've sinned against you. I've I've fallen short of your standard. I've gone my own way. But I believe what your word says, that, that you have made a provision, that you have sent a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he gave his life on my behalf, that he was raised from the dead. I want to follow him. I want to live my life for his glory. Cry out to him to save you. Receive the gift of his life. Partake of his provision for you. The truth is we all need to be reminded. Of what Jesus has done for us. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to forget. We're prone to forget to celebrate. Become consumed with the things of this life. And one of the ways that we remind ourselves. And others that we have received this life. Is by participating in communion. By the Lord's Supper. Scripture says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He was observing the the Passover with His disciples, with his, His friends. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is My body. Then he continued on. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so they had gathered to remember uh, what what God had done. To the Passover observance and celebration, they gathered to remember and to celebrate that God had uh, passed over them. And that he had delivered them from bondage and that he had spared their lives because of the Passover lamb that was slain in their place. And ultimately, Jesus is saying that event was anticipating me. The pure and perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. And so Jesus instructed his followers to participate in that act. The New Testament instructs us as God's people, as followers of Christ, to To take the bread and to drink the cup. And to remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. And when we do so. Friends when we observe the Lord's Supper. We are looking back at what Christ has done for us on the cross. That he has completed our salvation. That he has paid the price. That there is nothing left to pay. That our salvation, our forgiveness is dependent on what Christ has already done. We look back at the cross we gather in a room like this and we look around at each other and we see a family of believers. We see brothers and sisters and moms and dads and grandparents in the faith. And we're reminded that we that we are part of a family. We're part of something much bigger than us. There's a sense of growth together. We look around and see a united body of believers, and then we look up and we see Christ still reigning on the throne. He is victorious, he is on high. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And then we look forward anticipating his soon return for us and life forever with him. We look back, we look around, we, we look up and we look forward to the king's return. And until then, we celebrate him. We partake of his sacrifice and we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. Was well, our deacons who are serving communion join me at? communion table, let me invite all of you to spend uh, a couple minutes in prayer. Would you bow where you are? Would you take some time to reflect on the cross of Christ and to confess sins before the Most High God? Certainly we have reason to rejoice this morning. Uh, We don't want to come to the table flippantly. We don't want to take the elements without reverence. We want to remember who it is that we're worshiping and the great cost of of His Son, His life for us. And so for those reasons, we we invite all who who know Christ to participate this morning, to take the elements as they come your way. But if you don't know Christ, regardless of your age, if you don't know Christ, let me encourage you to spend this time praying that the Lord would lead you to the truth. Out of reverence for, for who Christ is and His command and what He's done. If you don't know Him, let me... Let me ask you to abstain this morning, but whether you're a church member here or not, if if you know Jesus, we invite you to take the elements today. I encourage you to, to take a moment to confess sin, to reflect on the cross, and then I'll lead us in a prayer, and we'll begin to pass the elements. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, you are unmatched. You are unequal. You alone are God. There is none like you. Lord, you stand outside of time. You are eternal. We we cannot even begin to comprehend some of the great mysteries around your person and your character, Lord. But we do know, we know you because you have made yourself known to us. You have spoken to us through your word. You have... Come and dwelt among us in your word made flesh. And Father, we know because of your word that you are a good and loving and compassionate and gracious and kind and patient and just God. And Lord, despite our sin, you long to save us, to restore us to be known by us and to know us intimately forever and ever and ever. And, Lord, you have provided a way for that to take place through the cross of Calvary, through the birth of a Savior who would grow up to be a perfect man and lay down his life as the perfect lamb and be raised from the dead according to your might and your power. And, Lord, we anticipate him coming again. Lord, as we participate in communion this morning, may we be filled with joy. May we rejoice in what you have done for us. May we express our faith as we remember for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.